Hey guys, before we start this episode, I wanted to talk to you about Type 1 Lifting. So Type 1 Lifting is a clothing line that proceeds of the shirts and tanks and everything else goes to the Children's Diabetes Foundation. So um, this all came about with me and seeing a five-year-old girl in the emergency department uh, that had a new onset of diabetes. So uh, just take a look at the website. It's www type1lifting.com so just check it out if you don't buy anything that's perfectly fine uh, I would just like for you just to take a look and just see what we have so like I said before www.type1lifting.com and guys I hope you enjoy the show What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Type 1 Lifting Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. I have a very special guest, actually Linda Franklin's coach, Rodney Miller. How's everything going? It's going great. It's a little hot out here, but other than that, I'm surviving. Yeah, so you, you're in Texas. Now, whereabouts in Texas are you? So I'm in what's considered to be West Texas, so out in Midland. And okay. they call it Midland because it's the halfway point between Dallas and El Paso. Okay. That's literally why it's called Midland. <laughs> so we are right on the edge of the desert. Mm -hmm. Very, very hot. Very, very dry. Yeah. I've, I've actually, when I was in the Air Force, I actually was stationed in um, Wichita Falls, Texas, like right, like 20 minutes south of the Oklahoma border. And then yep. we, we were like in uh, San Antonio, then Austin, you know. So I I know that's like even further west where you where you are, so... Yeah, we have nothing but tumbleweeds and pump jacks out here. Yep, exactly. With Wichita Falls, Texas, the same thing. It's like middle middle of nowhere, nothing going on. <laughs> yeah, but so you're you're a type one diabetic. So when so um, I like to talk to all my ask my all my guests. When did they get diagnosed with uh, type one diabetes? So I was diagnosed at four years old, and pretty typical diagnosis story. Uh, was experiencing a lot of thirst, was drinking a ton of fluid, was urinating a ton, and eventually my parents were like, something's wrong here, we need to do something about this. And so, took me into the ER, and I tested at a 880 blood sugar, uh, so catastrophically high, right, like off the charts high. And uh, where it kind of differs a little bit for most people is that I actually fell into a coma for two weeks. Wow. And uh, don't really remember a whole lot, lights and general sounds and stuff like that. But, you know, it's, it's like being in a, a fuzzy cocoon. You couldn't reach out and interact with anything. You just kind of got those inputs in. But like uh, anyone that knows me for very long realizes that I am an incredibly stubborn creature. So uh, I guess I decided that, you know, nah, this, this is, isn't going down like this at this point in time. So after about two weeks, I came out of the coma. And that's kind of where we started with the type one journey. Uh, very rudimentary the first few years. I actually grew up in Southern Oklahoma where medical care is not, not probably the highest standard mm -hmm. uh, comparatively across the US. Uh, and so we were told a lot of things like, you know it better than we do, you deal with it. So we you know, worked off of some antiquated uh, charts and stuff like the exchange system I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, basically one kind fruit of, serving equals this much insulin and mm -hmm. one meat serving equals this much yeah not the most accurate way to do it uh, <laughs> so uh, and I actually didn't meet another type 1 until I was 23 years old wow so I was very isolated kind of in my own bubble trying to uh, sort through all these changes that was going on and you know stuff like that yeah. So when you when you were a kid and you're like the only diabetic in the that you know of, so what was it like? Was like did you have a hard time like playing with other kids or like what was your childhood and like high school years like before you actually noticed there's other other diabetics out there? Oof. Uh, I would say, you know, to to kind of give you a little bit of understanding too, because you have to understand that my parents were incredibly strict. Uh, for good reason, but it still really kind of hindered coming into my own as taking care of it as my own. I was 16 years old before I was allowed to give myself my own shots. Wow. 
Yeah, so very, like I said, it was a very tightly controlled. And, you know, at that point we were using Humulin R. So if I, if it came down to meal time, you know, because this was before CGM, so we would check blood sugars before meal times. And if I was high, they would dose me with insulin and then I'd have to wait 45 minutes before I was allowed to eat. And if I was too high, I just wasn't allowed to eat, period. And so that was a very, you know, hard line in the sand type structure to grow up within. So by the time I got into my teenage years, uh, I took that male rebellion phase (laughs) that I feel like we all go through to some extent, and I just went completely off the charts with it. Um, You know, growing up, the kids in my class, they really didn't understand, you know, especially early on, you know, why I was different or why I had to have these special things, why I was allowed to have snacks in the afternoon, uh, because that was another thing that came with the exchange system is they had um, five meals a day, you know, three primary meals and two snacks in the afternoon and then a bedtime snack. And uh, so that structure was pretty strictly adhered to. And so they didn't understand why I was allowed to eat in class and have these other snacks. And even the teachers, you know, there were several times where we would have teachers refuse to let me have an afternoon snack, even though I would have been dosed with insulin from that. So, yeah, you know, not really any fault of them. They probably should have been a little better educated, but we didn't have a school nurse. Mm-hmm. And there were 17 kids in my graduating class. This is a very small school with very inadequate resources to deal with something like this. Um, in my teenage years, like I said, I just went full-blown rebellion, um, drinking and everything like that, you know, those types of behaviors that just didn't lend itself very well to any sort of mm-hmm. blood sugar control. And then kind of the end, tapering off into my teenage years, the 17, 18, 19 years of age, I actually put myself in the hospital six times with DKA. And uh, one of the times it was severe enough that they couldn't get an IV needle in me. Wow. Because I was so dehydrated, I'd lost about 12 pounds of water. And uh, so it was very difficult. And, you know, those things in the moment, you're like, God, this is dumb. Like, why am I doing this to myself? And then, you know, then you go back and you're hiding, taking shots. And I was one of those very, <clears throat> very withheld about what I had because it had always been used against me. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you get special treatment? You know, and my father told me something that's going to sound very harsh to viewers, but you have to understand that where he was coming from was he was trying to prepare me for the unfairness of life. You know, and this comes from a man who, when he was a child, didn't have a home to live in for a number of years. Mm-hmm were actually squatters in Texas uh, so he told me I was really I was about 12 years old I was really having a hard time with things I was going through puberty which if any type ones are out oh. there that have gone through that they know that that's the worst mm-hmm. there's no controlling numbers and again like I said if I was too high I wasn't allowed to eat so I grew six inches over a summer and I can remember being curled up in the floor in the fetal position from hunger pains, mm-hmm. which is not pleasant. I don't recommend it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was having a hard time and, and I went to him and, you know, I'm kind of like, Dad, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to process this. And he was like, you know, Rodney, nobody cares. If you have a choice, you can let this disease control you and ultimately kill you or you can take the steps that you know you have to do to take care of yourself. And again, it's not exactly true because as we know with things like this and as we've gotten to be adults and out in the real world, we do understand that people do care. Mm-hmm. You know, the people there are people there that will help you, will walk this path with you and help guide you when you need help. So, but he was trying to prepare me for those moments those dark times where you're just fed up with everything and you've got sort of that innate decision, right? Like you've yep. got the decision of my blood sugar is 300. And if I don't do something about this, it's just going to get worse and could eventually turn into DKA or I can get up and fight this level of apathy that I'm feeling to go get my insulin and take the shot and try to get my numbers back into the range. Mm-hmm. 
And that's one of the big things when I talk, especially to parents of type ones, is that I try to convey that, you know, CGMs and everything are great. It's real easy to get caught up in the minutia of the numbers. But the thing is, is that number changes a million times in a day. And you've got to understand that it's just a data point. It isn't a reflection of who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not a failure because you have a high blood sugar. You're not a failure because you had a low blood sugar. It's like there are an infinite number of variables that contend with your blood glucose level. And so at the end of the day, the CGM is merely there to give you more data. It's not a, the, the number doesn't matter. It just matters as far as what your next step should be. Yeah. Exactly. I always feel like that that's a very important concept to kind of get out there is that these things are great and they're great because they give you more data, not they should never make you feel guilty about whatever numbers on that screen. Mm-hmm. No, I hear that. That's awesome. I love it. So when um, when you first saw your first like other diabetic out in the out in the real world, was it like looking at a unicorn like you couldn't believe like there's another one out here? <laughs> yeah. I was 23 years old, and so, you know, I'd gone this whole time alone, and uh, it wasn't a magical experience, I'm not going to lie. I was <laughs> in a doctor's office, and another type 1 was coming out of an appointment, and uh, it was an older male, probably in his 30s, and I was, you know, obviously in my young 20s, and I was like, oh, you're type 1? And he just didn't even acknowledge that I spoke. Uh you know, it was one of those people, and you know, you can't blame people. Everyone deals with things differently. Yeah, he was very much you can tell in the mindset that I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to acknowledge that this is a this is something that I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I don't know a story. He could have been recently diagnosed as an adult onset, or he could have been at one of his burnout phases. You know, just you never know with that stuff. Yeah. And over the next few years, I would meet a couple, and it would be in the most random places the most random times because that's how life works and so i'd have you know a quick five or ten minute conversation with one and you know we call it meeting one in the wild right so yeah (laughs) you know you never know when it's gonna occur and so it's always a little bit of a magical experience and you get really excited and uh i've since learned my wife has to rein me in a little bit because i get really excited Mm -hmm. you know here i am at this larger bearded individual that's like giddy like a schoolgirl coming <laughs> at people and uh I, unfortunately i've intimidated a few type ones probably because i've been like oh my god we need to be best friends like now <laughs> yeah but there's something that's very very magical about meeting another type one and you know, I, I talk about this when I give, because I, I talk at a few conferences and camp, diabetes camps and whatnot, and I always tell the kids that having type 1 is like having a superpower, because it's, what's a superpower? It's doing something that normal people can't do. Mm-hmm. You know, we live every day with a life and death disease that requires constant management, constant brain power to be up to date with where we are with our numbers and our food and our exercise and our insulin, and so we do all this as just an innate process it just slowly becomes ingrained in us to have these running calculations going on and so when you show up to play any sort of sporting event you've already won you know you've already carried something there that took far more effort than your teammates did Mm -hmm. you know they put in hard work sure but you put in that hard work plus this additional thing that you had to take care of and when you so when you meet another type one no one else gets with that level of constant brain activity kind of wears on you, you know, and, and how stressful it can be until you meet another type one. Like my wife, I love her to death, but she doesn't know what a low blood sugar feels like. You know, that panic where I have to eat everything in the house, no matter how weird it may be, because mm-hmm. if I don't get sugar in my body, I'm going to die. Like that sort of panicked feeling. Yeah. There's no, you know, I hope that she never has to experience that, but even describing it, it, it's not the same. Yeah. But when you meet another type one, like it's an instant connection because you know, you know what that person goes through on a very intimate level. And I think once you have that sort of connection with another human being, you can act as an aid, you know, if nothing else to let them know that they're not alone, that they, there are other people out there that are walking the same journey. And I think that that's probably one of the most magical things about being a diabetic 
is that we have that sort of level of empathy with other diabetics that most people will never experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, I actually saw another diabetic in the wild at Kroger the other day, and like I could tell because she had the the CG uh, the, the Dexacom in the back of her arm, and I was like. Oh my god! I think I'm gonna to talk to her. I'm gonna I'm to talk to her, and then like her son was with her too, and I'm like this. Oh, I can't do it. I'm like I I, I want to do my, my social distancing, and I was like I I need to get in, and get out. I can't I can't talk to, you know the I can't talk to her right now. But even though I wish I could, but like I, if I see like other people that have because I don't have a Dexacom or like a Libre or a pump, so I pretty much do shots and prick my finger. Uh, which is starting to be turned into a real pain in the ass, but we're work. I'm working on getting the pump in in a CG uh, in a CGM shortly. But uh, I always, if I always see them, I always ask them. Like in the beginning, when I was a diabetic, I was like, "Hey, you know, how do you like this? What do you think about it? What can change? Or have you tried anything else? You know, just pretty much pick their brain a little bit." And and when I was working at the children's hospital in the ER. I've told this many times, but like uh, I always welcome the new diabetics that come in or the diabetics that are there. Like all the nurses are like, Tom, there's a diabetic in room 18. Go, go for it. And I'm like, all right. So I'll walk in there and half of them, know, half of them already know me. They're like, oh, hey, good seeing you again. I'm like, well, you shouldn't be here. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's always, it's always a lot of fun, like meeting new diabetics, especially through social media too, which is unbelievable. So. Yeah, there's so many amazing people out there. You know, we understand what it's like to try to be a successful athlete, uh, even, a, you know, especially like a pro athlete with this kind of extra step that you have to take. And so anytime we see those, you know, I did some uh, interviews with Omnipod, because mm-hmm. uh, that's my preferred pump. And so Kate Hall who's a long distance jumper and a triple jumper. Um, which is just really cool to talk to her and like see how she prepares for things because we're both in the gym, but we're at very different ends of the spectrum. Obviously, you know, I'm looking for one rep max strength or strength for time. And she's looking at explosive speed and stuff like that. And just how do those different things affect the blood sugar differently? And that's the, you know, the kind of continuous thing that goes on is because, Diabetes is such a gray area that no one's going to have the exact same protocols Mm -hmm. or the exact same reactions to the same uh, inputs. And so it's always really interesting to me as kind of a nerd to be like, well, what do you do? And then what happens? Mm -hmm. And, you know, have you tried this? And then what happens? And so, but it's also helped me to understand some of the metabolic processes that are happening that we're not always aware of and try to piece together some cohesive plans for how to offset some of these things that occur. Yeah. You know, one of the big things is that most type 1s experience a spike in glucose level with high-intensity exercise, the anaerobic exercise. And we attribute that, or some people attribute that to adrenaline. And while there's a minor case of that occurring the bulk of it is actually because your body dumps a little bit of glucagon to get glycogen out of the liver to then get it to the muscle tissue because it needs a faster fuel source than breaking down fat Mm -hmm. and turning it back into glucose so you know we're seeing and that's why some people if you you know i spent a lot of years in the groups and stuff and you'd see people talk about well i went up into the 300s while i was in the gym and I didn't take a shot for it, and then an hour and a half later, I was back at 120. Because mm-hmm. it's just a transient high. You're seeing that that momentary of trying to get the glucose glycogen out of the liver and into the muscle tissue, and then once it's there, it you know, it's it's why correcting that is not always the best idea. Yeah, and I and I've also I've realized that like like your other hormones kick in too, and that's another reason why you get those big spikes too, and then like it goes back to normal because you're. Because your body's still in the fight or flight mode, and so and once like you're a half hour, forty five minutes done, it's like okay, I can kind of like deregulate and and like you know my blood sugar can be back to normal. Yeah, and then you know the big thing with insulin sensitivity is so much more greatly increased after anaerobic exercise compared to aerobic exercise. You know, so even then your basal for a period of time may be more basal insulin than you actually need. Mm-hmm. So then you've got to, you know, adjust that for that, you know, and I, 
came up with a pretty good protocol. I've worked with a couple of doctors at biochem that specifically work in the nutrition industry. One of them does coach, you know, he has a nutrition group and he does coach a few diabetics and they've had a ton of success working with the guy. The other one is actually like a third party formulator for supplement companies. So they'll go to him and we have this idea for a supplement and he'll kind of be like, well, you know, here's what you need to put in it. So I worked with those for a few years because the, the spike never made sense. It never made sense that it was adrenaline because you're just, you know, full blown fight or flight. You're not really experiencing that every time you go in the gym. Mm -hmm. If you are, man, you are super excited and I want to come train with you because you, you're just, that's like being chased across the Serengeti by a lion. Like you're, <laughs> you're going way harder in the gym than I think I could. Uh, so, you know, when we kind of delved into it and we looked at some of these metabolic processes that were occurring, we kind of developed a protocol that I've used for years and the CGM always reflects a flat line during training. And most of the other people that have used it, and you have to say most because there's always going to be... An outlier, yeah. Yeah. So what I do is 30 minutes prior to training, I'll have 20 to 30 grams of carbs, and I use Gatorade powder because they use dextrose in the Gatorade powder, mm -hmm. which is only one molecule away from glucose. So I'll dose a full amount of insulin for that, plus an additional one to two units depending on what I'm training. Obviously, if it's a max deadlift day or a max squat day, that's going to require a lot more output, and thus I'm probably going to get a lot more glycogen out of the liver mm -hmm. than you know a push press day. So well, what I'm trying to do is, you know, because insulin's not instantaneous, you know, Humalog is still 30 minutes to active in the system, so I'm trying to time it to offset what, my what I know my liver's going to dump. And then on bigger sessions, I'll actually have more carbs intra-workout. You know, uh, for strongman training days, like we could be training for four hours. You know, by the time you get the implements out, set them up, warm up with them, yep. do the work sets, put it all away. You know, you're three or four hours in before you realize it. So those days, I definitely have to bolster my energy stores with having some intra-workout carbs. Mm -hmm. And post-training, I'll have a very simple carb and a very lean protein. So I don't want any fat to impede the process of getting this food in my body to start the recovery process. But what happens is, is that post-training meal, I'll reduce my bolus amounts by 25 to 40%. Wow. Because I'm that much more insulin sensitive after the fact. Mm -hmm. and this is very body weight dependent and you know how good your insulin sensitivity is at baseline and all that. So no one can take that protocol and just automatically apply it to themselves mm -hmm. but you know the eating before a carbohydrate source and then a you know because doctors are saying this to cover their butts but they say you know don't have any active insulin on board when you exercise but that's not how a normal body works mm -hmm. you know that glycogen dump and little pulsate of insulin is a very well documented thing and that's why intra workout drinks exist is because they're trying to play off of that by giving you more insulin so then it shoves more water and nutrients into the body so you can perform harder and longer mm -hmm. so why should we approach this any differently you know why if we want to be and that was what set me apart early on that I found is that a lot of diabetics have a mindset that of I'm gonna exercise as a means to help manage the diabetes. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. It's a very uh, well-documented way to help improve your management. But for me, I was always more concerned about being a better athlete, not a better diabetic. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for what made me perform most optimally for the situation that I was in. And so, the mentality of how I approach things was just a little different because I wanted to know, you know, as a non-diabetic, what's occurring and how do I get to that versus, you know, if I was just worried about keeping a stable number and nothing else, well, as soon as my blood sugar would start spiking from doing 
high intensity exercise. I just go do some aerobic cardio. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it would come back down, you know, so that's, you know, the, you end up in those two schools of thought, you know, you want to be a high end athlete. These are probably the variations you need to look at versus are you doing this for just health and wellness? And like I said, both of those are very admirable goals because ultimately you're going to live longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right here. So with with all this exercise and fitness, so you're in mainly into powerlifting. So when did all this powerlifting like come about? Was it in your early 20s when this happened? or? So in, uh, yeah, in my early 20s, I was, I'd grown up as a farm kid. And so, you know, I knew that being physically active, hauling hay all summer, my blood sugars were always easier to control. They were always more in line. So I knew exercise was a huge aspect of it, but you know, I was kind of lazy and was kind of doing my own thing and I had a desk job. So I really wasn't that active. And then my wife came to me and told me she was pregnant. And that's when the light switch flipped because at that point I'd kind of just lackadaisically been, you know, keeping track of my numbers, letting my A1Cs kind of ride where they were. Mm -hmm. But now here was this, impetus of there's fixing to be someone depending on me to be there to provide for them to take care of them you know and I am a huge family guy that's um, very close to my family we spend a lot of time together and so it's it's very important to me and that was what kind of made me go I have to change what I'm doing because it's not going to be successful long term Mm mm-hmm and I never really worked out. I never really played sports. I graduated high school at five foot five and one hundred and seventeen pounds. Yeah, yeah. I was a tiny, tiny human being. Yeah. Uh, and was never really big. Was never really strong. Uh, so I knew that the gym would be a big aspect of it, and then you know the benefit would be that maybe I wouldn't be so scrawny and, and little anymore. Mm-hmm. So when I actually got in the gym, I was about 140 pounds, pretty uh, pretty chunky. I think my first body fat percentage test came back at like a 31 or a 32, so no, pretty high up there. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I remember the the first, I kind of did my own thing for a little while. Hired one trainer, and you know, it's one of those he was on his phone more and he was paying attention to me. Oh, uh, I can't stand, I can't stand that. They just. One of my biggest pet peeves as a personal trainer is just watching that crap. It's just oh, it's so annoying. Yeah. So annoying. It makes me want to frisbee a weight at them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it just didn't really mesh off well. And then I met another guy. And, you know, this was a, a Gold's Gym. So, you know, Globo Gym. Mm-hmm. This was before CrossFit. Yeah. There were really powerlifting gyms even had become more of a thing. And this guy was an old school bodybuilder like one of those blood sweat and tears type bodybuilders and the first night we worked together he pushed me so hard I actually had to run in the back alley and throw up (laughs) and I am the best rallier ever because I can throw up walk right back into the gym and hit another max effort weight like it's nothing yeah I don't know why that is but that's just but it was a, it was again, it was like one of those epiphany moments because it was like, wow, I can push myself this hard. I'd never been an athlete before, so I'd never been in that situation to push my physical limits to the brink like that. And so I went, you know, I did that, and we were doing something dumb like leg extensions, leg press, and lunges in a superset. And if you're not used to that kind of stuff, like it will smoke you so quickly. Yeah, and it did. It, obviously but then I came back in and he was like well are you done and I said why we've got two more sets left (laughs) and he was like all right let's go and so that kind of flipped the switch for me and was like you know I'm I don't know that I'll ever be good at this but I enjoy this because I'm testing these boundaries and I'm pushing myself harder than I've ever pushed myself before and so I did what most guys typically do when they kind of get in the gym and like, oh, well, this, this isn't the most horrible thing ever. Because I bought the Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. Oh, yep, yep. Yeah. I, I know exactly what that is. Yep. Yep. Me and Arnold, we spent some quality time, you know, 
<laughs> reading and rereading and followed bodybuilding religiously for a couple of years. Tried my hand at it a little bit. And uh, do you remember the cartoons, the old school cartoons for Mr. Strong? Was yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, sh- the shapes or whatever like that? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Upside, and Mr. Strong was an upside down triangle. Yeah. That's my body shape. <laughs> I have the worst case of chicken legs that you will ever come across. It doesn't matter what I squat, how many reps I do, just will never have big, chunky legs. But my upper body, I'm as wide as I am tall. Like, it's abnormally so. Um, so, you know, this is what I look like. So bodybuilding was obviously not for me, but mm-hmm. you've got to have big legs to bodybuild. And I happened to come in the gym one night, and there was a flyer for an unsanctioned powerlifting meet that was really just a bench and deadlift contest. And I was like, well, I like to do these things. Uh, I really like to deadlift, so why don't I just train for these, like, three weeks that I had before this contest and then show up? I ended up taking third in the deadlift and second in the bench press. Nice. uh, Which I entered the day that I got there. I didn't even plan on benching. So I was like, oh, this is fun. I like doing this. And so that kind of started my powerlifting journey and injuries happen and, you know, stuff like that starts to occur. And after I tore my groin twice, um, just through a bit of stupidity and a bit of bad luck, came in the gym one day, was supposed to be squatting with a couple of national record holding powerlifters based out of Dallas. And the gym was about 60 degrees. I didn't get warmed up well enough. Threw the weight on my back, and I'm a pretty fast drop. Not like in a, a weightlifter type drop, but mm. definitely for powerlifting, I was a bit faster. And when I hit the bottom, man, it was like a shotgun. It just popped. And I actually tore my uh, adductor on my right leg Oof. and couldn't walk. So. Yeah. Because you kind of need that thing. And it was a muscle belly tear instead of a tendon detachment. So the doctor said, you know, there's nothing to do. You just have to let it heal on your own. And at that point, my cardio was non-existent because, you know, powerlifters at that time, when I was in the heat of it, it was more about being as big as possible to move the most weight as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like top field dragster versus stock car. You know, you you were very specialized in what you did. You waddled up, got under the bar, went down and up, and you waddled back and sat down and had, you know, breathing treatments for the next 20 minutes (laughs) because you were that deconditioned. And I was like, something's got to change. And so then I got into Strongman. And uh, Strongman's actually where I spent the majority of my time, uh, about six years competing in Strongman. And I had a more natural aptitude for it than I ever did for powerlifting, probably largely in the fact of growing up as a farm kid. Mm-hmm. You know, bells of hay are odd objects, you know, wrestling cattle and stuff like that. So um, I competed the first time in 2013, and I've competed at the national level in strongman. And I I love strongman. It's just it's such. I like the variability of the sport. I like the fact that there's, you know, I may be asked to pull a one rep max deadlift or I may be asked to clean and press a log for as many reps as I can do in 60 to 75 seconds. Mm -hmm. Pull a fire truck, deadlift a car, flip a tire. I mean, what about these things don't sound fun? Yeah. So, uh, and and that's kind of always been, I've had a lot of fun with it. Unfortunately, injuries continue to occur because anytime you're pushing that limit, uh, and you know, I talked about this a little bit, uh, that you've really got to measure what you're doing. You know, that's one of the things as a coach that is very hard to get across to your clients sometimes is that I know you want to do all these meets this year, like seven powerlifting meets in one year. Yeah. We really need to pick two, maybe three and focused on those because if you always spend time in meat prep your body never has a chance to recover and you're not going to make long-term progress that way uh i found that out the hard way when in 2015 i was actually deadlifting in a car at a ada american diabetes association event and tore a muscle beside my spine Oof. so 
sometimes, but I'd also competed six times the previous year. Yeah. Which is way too much. Yeah, it's it's almost like CrossFit too. So like in the early stages of CrossFit, like all those guys just went full throttle like every single day, just like murdering themselves. And then like then all the injuries just started just com- coming around and just wrecked it. And then people were realizing, hey, we should have like a D-low week or like, you know, some rest days or something like that. Just something to, that's not like making the killing ourselves like every single day. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had clients come to me and be like, oh, I'm training seven days a week. I'm like, stop. Just stop. seven days a week is too much. <laughs> too, too much. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I have a client now who is incredibly strong, but, you know, we'll get to the end of the week and I'll be like, wow, you had a day that really just kind of tanked effort-wise. And she's like, well, uh, I may have done two wads back-to-back. And it's like, you know, I'm not saying don't do those things, but just know that those things, they really should be slotted in a little bit better to overall programming. Yeah. Because especially for powerlifting, you know, we're typically setting up programs 16 or 12 weeks out and every I can tell you almost to the ounce how many pounds you're going to lift on what lift every week right up until the meet because mm-hmm. that's just it's the most effective way to do it now where I vary a little bit is that I use a rate of perceived exertion scale especially for type 1 athletes because if you have a bad day of blood sugars or you know you have a low right before the gym or whatever you have to be able to moderate what weight you're going to use to offset that from occurring right because not every day is going to be the most sunshine and rainbows day in the gym ever so if you know that our goal is to have a perceived effort of eight in the gym tonight and you go in and you start warming up and you're still 20 or 30 pounds shy of that work set that we've designated that day but you're already at an RP of eight, you need to stay there. Yeah. Because the body doesn't know how much weight is on the bar. It only knows how much effort that you're putting into moving the weight on the bar. Mm-hmm. So it's much more effective to get the desired effort out of somebody than it is to just hit this prescribed weight, you know, that we, you know, imaginary formulated off of some percentages. Like mm-hmm. that's not how, you know, reality works for most of us yeah. so that but and that's a pretty you know tough concept to teach to a lot of people is uh rpe coaching so how many like obviously you're coaching linda franklin like how many how many people do you coach typically in like a year or whatnot uh you know obviously there's some ebb and flow to it but i try to keep around 10 to 15 clients at a time and because for me it's it's not my primary income and so I don't have to be as, as client heavy as some other people that have to do not that there's anything wrong with that but it's a passion for me and so we spend a lot of time we talk a lot um, especially leading into a meet we may talk every day you know the week before a meet uh, talk about strategy we talk about what diets you know moderations we need to make to get you there on weight on time to perform so you know it's it's a heavily detailed process and what i do is i'll sell a 12-week block of training for a set price and then i send you a week's worth of programming at the end of week you send it back to me with any comments or concerns Mm -hmm. i adjust and we go forward from there so it's never that cookie cutter here's 12 weeks of workouts go have fun try not to bother me type deal like (laughs) yeah it's unlimited email i'm a huge huge proponent of videoing your sets and so i'll actually request clients to send me videos of certain movements uh you know the last set of this movement the first set of this one because over the years i've had a coach the whole time that's just you need someone removed to give you that you know view in without all the bias that you have towards yourself Mm -hmm. and all of it's been online because where i live there's just no one out here that does this kind of stuff so 
you learn over the years that you know there's certain things you look for you learn how to coach via video and these are all really big things that i take into account when i'm setting up someone's program mm-hmm. you know and i know it's tedious for them but you know the first couple of weeks if it's a new client that i don't have any sort of information on whatsoever i'm going to make them video everything uh, you know i want you to video how you do ab workouts because i need to see you know what you're doing are you doing a plank are you doing an active plank are you letting your body sag through the movement using your low back to hold you up you know all these things tell me vital information that then i can put together a more cohesive plan to address everything because mm-hmm. as a coach one of my biggest things is to insulate them from injury you know so i try to uh, identify and attack weaknesses in their cement you know symmetry and their muscle balance and stuff like that because that's typically where we see injuries occur is once that muscle imbalance starts to occur and that gap widens between strength and weakness between two opposing muscles the possibility of some sort of injury becomes much much greater Mm -hmm. you know we look at most sports injuries and it's hamstring tears or bicep tears well those are both inhibiting extension and so obviously these guys have massive quads or ladies and they're running full tilt and simply the body's speed and explosive force by the quad to extend the knee can't be matched by the hamstring to act as a brake force and then you tear your hamstring so how do we address that well you're going to sit down and you're going to do a hundred banded hamstring curls at least once a week (laughs) that's brutal (laughs) yeah your face just went no but uh, you know one of the nice things about bands is that there's very little load on the eccentric portion and so you can acquire a lot of reps with it without there being a lot of joint damage Mm. or joint irritation and so they work really well for those sort of movements like that they work very well for shoulder exercises uh, for any sort of rehab type stuff I'm a big fan of bands and then hamstring curls, you know, especially in a, you know, CrossFit box or something like it's very rarely that you're going to have a ham, a seated hamstring curl machine mm-hmm. or, you know, a prone hamstring curl machine, but you're going to have bands, you know, and you're going to do an, an RDL or a good morning or some other movement that acts as a big compound mover of those muscles. But at the end of the day, we need to get a lot of blood and a lot of nutrient flow into those things especially because you sit on them so much as well. And those banded hamstring curls work. <laughs> they work really well. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I haven't done 100 banded hamstring curls, but I can imagine they they work wonders. So, I mean, I even with me when I do good mornings, a lot of people try to go down as far as they can on those good mornings. And I'm like, nope. Like when you just start feeling that that little, like that light pull, that's when you stop and you just head back up again. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the big things, especially on RDLs. People act like they've got to try to touch the plates to the floor, and that's not the case whatsoever. It's, mm-hmm. it's about loading the hips and hamstrings, and you know you've got to work the posterior chain, the low back, the hips, and the hamstrings all work as one unit for the most part. So once you go past a certain point, the low back just gives out, like you can't maintain its proper alignment. Yeah, and then you're just shifting stuff to places it doesn't need to go. So one of the kind of tricks that I found to teaching people how to do RDLs very effectively is you push the bar into your thighs mm-hmm. the entire time. And so what that forces you to do is it forces your hips to go back because if you're pushing the bar into you, the hips can only go back to keep you going down. And then the people find that they can only go about an inch, maybe two inches below their kneecaps, and that's it. You know that That's as far as you need to go if you're on point with what you're doing. Yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that's really big, that I'm really big on. And like I tell people, I'm gonna come across as nitpicky, but it's these little nitpicky things that can completely change an exercise for you. Mm-hmm. To- totally agree, yeah. yeah. Some movements are about moving weight from A to B, but so, especially your accessory work should be about feeling the muscle work, taking it through a full range of motion, and actually being able to control 
contraction for that muscle mm-hmm. because you know the mind muscle connection sounds really broy but it's a very real thing you know there's really only three ways that you get stronger is that your technique improves and so you're more efficient with applying the force that you can produce the muscle gets bigger which then you just have more mechanical advantage to apply to the load or your cns becomes more efficient and so literally the pathways to the muscles become more efficient and you're able to fire those muscles at a stronger rate and so if those are the three ways we've got to be addressing all of those three things at all times Mm -hmm. yeah are you are you a big fan of like banded banded pull-aparts or like oh yeah yeah i like i love doing those banded pull parts face pulls uh rear delt raises no one trains rear delts enough i don't care who you are no one trains rear delts enough. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. Um, but a lot of times people grab weights and they just start swinging them around. And they understand that that muscle is very, very tiny and it has a very, very limited range of motion. And so, again, with the bands, I can make you do 100 band pull-aparts or 100 band rear raises. And eventually that rear delt is going to burn so badly. You're going to know exactly where it is. And what's funny is once you know exactly where it is and you feel that contract, you have a much easier time of hitting it again mm-hmm. the next week and the next week. And so it's that again, it's that mind muscle connection. You're burning in that pathway. Yeah. So much stronger. And I think that's one of the biggest things why I push a lot of type ones into resistance training is because if we look at radial neuropathy, you know, deadening of the nerves in our hands and our feet. Well, if we strengthen the nerve signals going down to there, maybe we can possibly stave off some of this late onset complications. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a that's a great great idea. So, I mean, I mean, I remember talking to Linda last week about like how like CrossFit pretty much just murdered her hands. Like they were just it did it did an awful awful thing for her for her hands, and so now she started powerlifting, and it's actually a little bit better for her with her hands and everything because they don't really it's not not as grippy it is as pretty much to crossfit right so you know especially me at 200 plus pounds like a kipping pull-up is rough on my hands yeah you know i can hold 200 plus a hand walking farmer's walks but you start wanting me to swing on the bar do toes to bars do muscle ups and stuff like that my my grip strength is not going to hold up long yeah and you know, talk about, you know, highly contested things. You know, even in the powerlifting community, a lot of people view straps as, you know, a gimmick or, you know, something that's going to make you weaker. Kind of like the same people that think belts make your abs not work. I don't, I don't get that. <laughs> but uh, so when we first started out with Linda on getting her into powerlifting, she wasn't allowed to use her own hands except on max effort lifts mm-hmm. the one days where we were training maximal strength so all of her repetition days or we do dynamic effort days at that time uh she i had her use straps just to take the strain off of her fingers and then you know we would train grip specific things at a later point and so you know even simple things like taking a rubber band and putting it around your fingertips and opening your hand a hundred times yeah you know uh, because we barely, rarely work on extension for our hands, it's always contraction. Mm-hmm. So we've got to offset that some to, to make for a healthy hand. Uh, one of the other things that I really, really like is you get a bucket of sand and you put your hand down in it and you open and close your hand in the sand because it's resistance both ways, but it's not like a hard, you know, uh, not like using a weight or a big resistance band or something like that. It's yeah. more of a, a fluid type thing to get your hand to move inside there. Uh, so it's low impact because the joint is fully surrounded by the sand. And so it acts as kind of a support as well. Uh, and that's, you know, especially if you can set the, the sand outside and let it get a little warm too, because mm-hmm. then the heat helps to open up the capillaries and get better blood flow into the hands. And I think that that's a, a really 
you know, old wives tale maybe type thing, but I, I've had a lot of good luck with it myself and with other people that have used that. Yeah, I'll, I'm definitely going to try that Try that one. So, I mean, I'm in Georgia, so it's going to be hot as balls anyway. So, I was about to use it during the middle of the day or something like that. So, yeah. Well, awesome. if you look at, you know, a lot of the, the, um, the toted home remedies for arthritis and stuff like that is, you know, they have the, uh, put on the plastic glove and you put it down into hot wax mm-hmm. and let the hot wax cool because then it, you know, insulates the hand and that warm heat and helps to alleviate the inflammation that's there. So it's the same, you know, you know, you just find, you tend to find things if you do this long enough, you find little sheets or tricks or tips or stuff yeah you know to, to get you across the goal you know um there's there's a lot of things i used to never be able to feel pullovers you know very bodybuilder specific type move no matter what i did any arm placement i just couldn't feel them whatsoever and uh finally i was sitting there one night with my daughter and I was raising her over my head as I was laying down, and I was like, "Oh, there's my lap." <laughs> you know, and then you just take it and you run with it. And you go, "Okay, what in the gym can I do that's going to mimic what my child feels like squirming around?" And so I got a medicine ball or a, a heavy slam ball, and found that if I did, you know, a decline bench with a medicine ball, I could really feel my lats work to a great degree. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So you actually start also started a nonprofit charity. And so can you talk a little bit more about that too? Yes. So in 2016, I was looking around in the diabetes space. At this point, I was an admin for a Facebook group called the Type 1 Athletes Group. And there weren't any support groups or really dedicated events for diabetics that wanted to use a barbell as a means to increase their health and I thought well this kind of stinks you know there's all this misinformation and people are kind of going at this alone maybe I can do something to offset this and there were you know we knew quite a few lifters that were in the group and I said hey let's all get together in Austin Texas and we'll do this event and we'll just get together and we'll have some speakers from the diabetes community and then we'll lift some weights and we'll have a good time and so we had 23 type 1 diabetics show up to this event. And to say it was life-changing is a gross understatement. Because uh, I was looking around, the, I stopped at one point and just kind of in awe, and I looked around the room and realized that if you weren't a diabetic in this room, that made you the oddball. You know, yeah. being a diabetic was the normal in this room at this point in time. We were all lifting, we were all having a good time, and we all understood each other on a very base level and so I knew that it had to continue from there and I met a very good friend of mine uh, Roz and she (laughs) she's from Philly and she's very much one of those type A people and I love her to death for it so she was like no this has to go on and like I'm going to make you take it on (laughs) (laughs) from there and so she helped me you know she's I, I say you know that I'm the founder, but really I'm the co-founder of Bolsa Barbells and she's the the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. And so we got our 501c3 set up and we started hosting events. You know, we've done Philly, we've done Austin, we've done San Jose, we've done Miami, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. So we've kind of been all over the place. And how we structure these events is we want them uh, at first, a lot of people were, were taking it as this was a competition, like this was a lifting competition. And, and so we've struggled to kind of overcome that uh, initial kind of mindset to what our events were. And they're not. We structure them in a way that they're open from people that have never touched a barbell a day in their lives, mm-hmm. all the way to elite level power lifters. You know, we provide staff that has that sort of range of experience from coaching complete beginners to coaching high level athletes so that everyone can get something out of the event. And then we typically bring in, you know, motivational speakers, some people from some really varied backgrounds. Uh, We had a very good friend of mine, Colt Scott, who was on Netflix's version of American Ninja Warriors called Beastmaster. Okay. Uh, and then he's coached uh, 
Ninja Warrior courses. He's actually a tester for those courses and stuff. And so, a very neat guy and kind of a, you know, one of those kind of more oddballish type uh, type sports. So, you know, and then we have physical therapists or endocrinologists or diabetic educators or nurses come in, talk about new diabetes tech, new drugs on the market, or injury prevention, rehabilitation, program structure. You know, we all try to give tangible content that you can then take home and apply to what you're doing with your own training. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's starting training or getting to the next powerlifting meet or strongman contest or whatever it may be. And then in the afternoons, because my background's in strongman and it's such a visually appealing sport, you know, it's deadlifting cars and it's pulling fire trucks and it's flipping giant tires. You know, I try to get people involved in that because it really is accessible to everybody. It's just overwhelming if you don't know what you're doing. And so we provide the coaching to allow you to understand the fundamentals of what you're doing. And the best case in point for that is that uh, we had this event. It was in Miami. I didn't tell anybody what they were going to be doing. I just ushered them all outside. And they're like, what are we doing? And I said, well, you're going to pull a crew cab Chevy truck. And they're like, no, we're not. <laughs> you know? Because no one sits around and goes, yeah, I could probably do that. Yeah. No, they're like, no, this is a huge vehicle. There's no way I can do this. But everyone did. Everybody did. And I, what I find is that it's a very powerful tool in you know, changing the mindset of, I didn't think I could do this. I did it, and it really wasn't even that hard. What other things in my life have I not tried or not stepped out participate in because I was afraid that I would fail at it. Mm-hmm. So you kind of remove those boundaries. Uh, a good friend of mine, Chris Rudin, who is an elite level power lifter, a type one diabetic, and was born with a um, abnormal hands. Yeah. And so, you know, his mantra is that limitations are self imposed. And so I'm very much on board with that in that you know, if we remove this mindset that I don't want to try this for fear of failure, then there's really not a lot that you can't do. Mm-hmm. You know, it oh, really opens up the scope of, of what you're capable of doing. And so we try to apply that to the events and we need to take them through, through that. And then after that, we typically squat, overhead press, and deadlift because those are big basic movements that I feel that everyone benefits from. And they're easy to slot in with a big group of people, but we have we break people down based on abilities, and so you know you don't have someone that's never touched a barbell and a, a six hundred pound squatter in the same group because that's <laughs> that's a, no that that won't work. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work well that way. But we have coaches with every group, and so they're they're walking you through, they're pointing out you know hey try this this will probably get more weight. And so I tell people, don't go for max effort, you know, go with something that feels comfortable, uh, just because I don't want anybody to get hurt. But invariably, m- most people or a lot of people end up hitting PRs or something like yeah, that. Yeah, very cool. Very yeah. cool. And that's, the, you know, that's an awesome experience to be a part of. You know, I'm sure your years in the gym have taught you that. You know, when someone hits a PR, like, it's a group celebration. Like, yeah. Because you understand. You know what it's like to put in those hours and days weeks sometimes months and years to get to this certain Mm -hmm. goal that you've had in mind and then once you hit it it's like ah finally yeah culmination of all my work exactly well if you do another one soon i'd love to be partake in it like actually like help out with it so um so we're so we're getting close to the end um so two questions well actually kind of three so where can people find you on social media and are you taking clients so social media, <clears throat> my Instagram is uh, probably one of the easiest ways to get a hold of me, and it is strong like troll. <laughs> I, lo- I, lo- I love that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so my nickname is actually Cave Troll. Uh, <laughs> I'm as wide as I am tall. I can't swim. I'm afraid of heights. I should probably be holding up a bridge somewhere. You know, so <laughs> Cave Troll just really fits. Yeah. Um, I am taking clients, uh, especially with everything that's gone on. My primary source of income has slowed down, so I've got a big vacuum of time that 
help some people out and either you know just because that I do coach a lot of competitive clients uh, you know if you're starting in the gym and need structure which most people do or maybe you've hit a rut in your training like you know not everyone has to compete mm -hmm. it's not for everybody and I'm more than willing to sit down and coach through those people as well as the competitive athletes. Awesome. Very cool. Now, the last one. So let's just say you met a new onset diabetic. What would you tell them what to expect as a diabetic for the rest of their life? Uh, the first thing out of my mouth is probably you are not alone. There is a huge community out here that is very powerful and very willing.